When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Wednesday, November 3rd, 2021. I'm Maggie Lake here with Darius Dale of 42 Macro. Hey there, Darius. Hey, I'm changing my name. It's to Salt Salt Bay Dale from now on. I'm just, just <laughs> bull markets from here on out. Bull markets. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I'm certainly the, that is certainly the case today. You know, after all the anticipation, the U.S. Federal Reserve finally laid out plans to taper its purchases of bond buying starting in November. They're going to be buying $15 billion less paper each month, $10 billion less treasuries, $5 billion less mortgage-backed securities. And importantly for the markets, uh, Jay Powell and the committee reiterated that they are going to be patient on interest rates, although we can get into a little bit of the hedging that they did, U.S. stocks, as a result, as we were sort of sitting through that press conference, um, pairing their losses, rallying across the major indices, hitting all-time highs, the 10-year Treasury yield, moving up on that news. Uh, you know, it, it, it's interesting that the, the Fed really, Dara, is taking great pains to telegraph this move ahead of time. And yet there were a lot of markets because we did see a lot of nerves, I should say. We did see a market reaction afterwards. What jumped out to you? Yeah, I mean, look, the, 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 the S&P 500, looking at the SPY ETF, came in today to today with a 27% implied volatility premium based on how we calculate the volatility risk premium. And that was indicative of a, of a, of a setup whereby, man, if he didn't say anything silly, we're going to be off to the races to the upside. And obviously we saw that reflected in all-time highs in stocks. Small caps had a, another huge day to the upside. And this is really going back to the point I've been making for a little bit over a month now, which is, hey, look, we're going to get a rip-your-face-off rally throughout Q4 because bears are trapped and they don't realize that the, economic, the economy is actually improving here in Q4, albeit for a small amount of time. And there was there was a lot of concern about that. I mean, all we heard about was stagflation, although there were plenty of people pushing back on that there. But there was a real concern that inflation and prices were going to run ahead of what we're seeing in terms of growth, that growth was going to disappoint. And in fact, we did see softening in the data that that, you know, sort of underlie that thesis. But but we are certainly not seeing that carry through for the moment. We did get in addition to. Uh, Powell talking about the economy. We got some readings today. Services came in strong. IMS services, uh, 66.7, right? Anything over 50 is expansionary. We got private payrolls um, that came in strong, you know, precursor maybe indicating a turnaround in Friday's payroll number. Uh, so where are we, though, in terms of growth? So it's not stagflation. What is the growth we're looking at? Because we do have a Fed who's keeping its foot off those rates. Yeah, so it's pretty clear to our data, and we and we're probably almost among the most data-driven firms in macro in the world. It's clear in our data that growth bottomed in the U.S. economy in September, and so we're starting to see a litany of October data that, on balance, really supports our view that the the, the, the U.S. and global economies were likely to bounce post Delta. Um, so we saw, obviously, going actually back to earlier this week, we got auto sales. They accelerated to 13 million SAR in October. Uh, that's the highest number we've seen in a couple of months. Um, that, that was a rate of change when that was actually the fastest rate we've seen since March. So that was a pretty big deal. 
the new home sales, we actually ticked up to 800K in October. Uh, the rate of change on that is the fastest we've seen since last July. So we're actually starting to see a, a pretty material acceleration in the economy. And then you bring it to today. ADP payroll is 517,000 month over month. Uh, that's the highest in four months. And then obviously you got all-time high in headline ISM services, all-time high in the new orders uh, component of the ISM services. Um, obviously prices ticked up as did uh, supplier delivery times uh, being slower. The percentage of responders responded to that. So we still have, you know, we're not out of the woods yet with respect to stagflation fears and supply chain disruptions, but what is new and what asset markets have been pricing in since I said this six weeks ago to go buy a bunch of stocks, yeah. the economy is going to improve. And the number one thing that markets function on, if you have to rank the three factors that markets care about, is number one, direction of travel is accelerating or decelerating, then the magnitude of the change, how big mm -hmm. are the deltas, and then lastly, where are you going to wind up? And I think a lot of investors start really getting overly concerned about the latter, where you're going to wind up, i.e. stagflation, and forgetting about the wiggle that caused the underperformance of cyclical sectors and style factors throughout the summertime. And that's likely, you know, it's catalyzed, obviously, a pretty meaningful recovery in those types of sectors and style factors. But really, it's been a broadening move. Because again, yeah. we think the markets are looking ahead into 2022 on the inflation front and acknowledging the fact that inflation is quite likely to be transitory in of change terms. Yeah, and, and we'll talk about this in a moment. Jay Powell took great pains to explain what they mean by transitory. I think it would have been helpful for everyone if they'd done this a few weeks ago, but you know they gotta wait for the press conference, I guess. I think Darius, it's really interesting as we look at this dynamic. It seems like so, so many things right now today, people are very black and white about this, right? They're very binary. It's either stagflation or, or it's hyperinflation, runaway inflation. It's hard. We're kind of missing a lot of nuance in the beginning. I think your grid, your, you know, the, the grid regime you use is so helpful in this respect. Walk us through that a little bit and, and tell us what growth looks like based on what you're seeing. Kind of where are we on your regime right now? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. So I'll unpack that in a couple of ways. I'll start with the economy because that's the easiest part of the thing to explain. And then you you, you hit a you, you struck a chord when you said the word nuance because nuance is really what drives financial markets, particularly at very critical intervals, like going back to late September or early October. If you didn't understand the nuance associated with investor positioning and bears getting caught trapped or the nuance that, hey, we're actually at a, a point in the um, economic release cycle where things are going to actually start to improve, you got nuanced out of performing, you know, <laughs> and sometimes yeah. that nuance really hurts. And I think a lot of investors are out there right now looking at a market that's gone straight up and saying, man, I wish I had the nuance associated with all the data I'm about to present. Um, yeah. the, the, the data on the, on the macroeconomy side, we peaked in conditional probability terms in terms of the economy, both for the U.S. and global economies pricing or, or, or anticipate that the stagflation probability peaked around a few weeks ago. And, you know, with the advent of all the September data, you know, right around about 35, 40 percent, you know, for the U.S. and global economies, respectively. We're actually now starting to go down that way. And what's likely what's actually happening is reflation is starting to come up. And for those of you listeners who are new to our work at 42 Macro, uh, stagflation is where growth trending lower and inflation is trending higher. Reflation is when growth and inflation are trending higher at the same time. And so now we're kind of we're, we're we've peaked in stagflation fears. And those that the, the the cessation of those fears is actually giving rise to reflation. But something you and I were talking about prior to the show, which takes me to the the market regime side of things, the market had already transitioned to reflation. You know, going back you know three or four weeks ago, out of stagflation. You know, the markets How are so? How so? How do you know well, that? It was, 
Well, we, we look at 42 different markets um, through the perspective of our volatility adjusted momentum signal, and we're actually scoring them according to their local behaviors across the regimes. And the number of markets that were confirming inflation actually overtook stagflation quite a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And so that's something our process uh, measures and maps daily. And that what's actually changing in that process now, nothing's changed in terms of what's leading. Inflation is still leading. Uh, the number of markets that are confirming it's as high as it's been since late June. But what's changing at the margins is actually Goldilocks is now starting to make a comeback. And to me, that's a big deal because what that actually signifies, if Goldilocks somehow takes the, the baton from reflation here in Q4, one, that's even more bullish for risk assets because you're mm-hmm. talking about a, a annualized expected return for the S&P 500 of like 27% as opposed to like 16%. So that's clearly more bullish. That's obviously, you're talking about annualized expected return for Bitcoin of 100% versus 400%. You know, so if Goldilocks did take that baton, um, one, I think it'll be driven by fundamental factors, which is namely the return of supply of labor supply means you're going to have an amelioration of supply chain disruptions, which likely means you have an amelioration of the, the sequential price pressures we've seen in the economy throughout the, well, obviously throughout the pandemic, but most recently throughout Delta. That's so interesting. So, so when you're in, 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 under reflation, which which you've been seeing happening and confirming, that explains why we're seeing the Russell say do well. I know a lot of people, Russell's up 4% just this week. That seems yeah, like a yeah. big move for a, a market that had been kind of going nowhere for a while. Yeah. I mean, that'd be a good year in the yelling fit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, so if we're, if we're in, do those markets that do well, what does well in reflation that you're tracking and or sectors, however you look at it, do they continue to do well or is that trade looking old and we have to think about sort of starting to position for Goldilocks. How, where are we in that pivot? Yeah. And, and this is something we've been discussing, you know, going back, uh, I want to say since, you know, mid to late September, you know, we've been, our portfolio construction of 42 macro reflects the fact that the probability, the range of probable outcomes economically is, is a very flat distribution. And so you are very likely to see sector and style factor leadership not trend throughout Q4, even though we're clearly in a reflation regime it's very unlikely we don't see a real trending reflation uh, regime from a sector and style factor leadership like we saw in the first half of 2021. That's exactly what we gotten. You know, coming off the lows of August with respect to cyclical sectors and style factors, they obviously put on a huge move through the kind of mid- middle part of October um, in terms of recapturing leadership. And this is something we called out uh, in mid-September. Where we were saying, hey, look, the market is going pro-cyclical. Ignore the, the, the headline drawdown. Go buy mm-hmm. stocks. Um, and we're actually now starting to see the return of more defensive sectors and style factors to the composition board. But again, it's very unlikely that any of this stuff trends. We could be playing what I've been terming style factor ping pong all throughout this sort of, you know, this bull market. And reality is the net result of that is a market that frustrates the heck out of short sellers and just goes up with broadening participation, which is something yeah. we've been calling out, obviously, for months. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You know, it's interesting as we as we talk about this, um, and and you still even now. Uh, you know, you're seeing confirmation of the indicators you look at, but we still, I think, have a very vibrant discussion and debate about what's going on in inflation. I mentioned Jay Powell taking pains to say that when we say transitory, we're not talking about a very specific time frame. 
we're talking about things that get baked structurally into the inflation picture that cannot be turned around. So, so a little bit more on the nature of the inflation as opposed to it being sort of t really time sensitive, which you heard. But a really interesting discussion that happened um, in, on Real Vision on the show, ha uh, Harry Melandri sat down uh, with Robert Duggar, who made a really important point, I think, about monetary policy not being an exact science. Let's have a listen to that clip. These institutions are not theoretically driven. They're not driven strictly by models. They are political institutions. The Federal Reserve, as William Grider pointed out in his book, uh, Secrets of the Temple, the Federal Reserve is one of the most politically sensitive institutions in the entire U.S. framework of governance. So this, this institution wanted to believe, it, it believed that it was doing the right thing, but the economy had its own mind about what it wanted to do. And the Federal Reserve uh, uh, FOMC was constantly forecasting, in a sense, what it wanted to believe was going to happen. We now call this confirmation bias. It's very well understood. Um, it was not particularly well understood uh, in, the in the 1970s. But this confirmation bias led the Fed during the 70s to be more accommodative than they should have. They didn't recognize that um, the implications of the demographic uh, changes that were taking place and how they would be affecting their institution. I mean, you know, it's interesting, by the way, that that interview, that full interview, um, highly recommended, is available for all pro and premium subscribers. Uh, it's interesting. The Fed, in some ways, did acknowledge shame at some point. Jay Powell said, listen, you know, a pandemic, the supply chain disruptions we've seen. I mean, this is difficult stuff to gauge for anyone. I mean, we've really never been here before. Um, but the Fed's certainly trying to leave itself a lot of wiggle room today, um, Darius, with that, saying that, you know, that they're going to be watching conditions or they'll change if conditions uh, you know, require them to. Does that does that raise the possibility of volatility ahead uh, and make us really, really data dependent now? Yeah, I think it does both. Now, and I'll say this: I think it increases the probability that we melt up and then crash. Right. And the reason I say this is because the changes in their language. If you look at the FOMC statement relative to what we saw in September, they they made two statements that stuck out to me. One. Inflation is elevated, largely reflecting factors that are expected to be transitory. That's very different than saying inflation is transitory, right? Now you're basically putting the onus on factors as opposed to your own forecast. That's a big mm -hmm. difference. Um, and then lastly, and then secondarily, supply demand imbalances related to the pandemic and the reopening of the economy have contributed to size of prices increases in some sectors. That's very different than saying like, hey, it's, you know, we, we it's just, don't worry about this. It's just pandemic. You know, they're actually starting to get more specific. And what that means is that I think they bought themselves some time with respect to any further changes in language. And right, because yeah. any further changes in language from here, now that they have authorized tapering, is obviously going to put the market focus on on, on policy rate tightening. Right, and so, right. you know, the irony of, you know, sort of buying yourself more time to you know be more dovish, you're actually exceeding, you're sowing the seeds of the next crash. Because yeah. I do believe that, that you know that that dovish tone to the, the the changes in the statement will allow investors to increase their risk appetite. You know, one thing we haven't talked about is that you're having realized volatility on a, on a 260 day basis, on a two year basis, even on a six month basis, actually starting to break down. And that those breakdowns in volatility are going to catalyze a lot of momentum oriented strategies in the CTA and the quant community to actually put on more leverage into this year end Santa Claus rally that we've been predicting. And mm -hmm. so ultimately, what you're talking about is 
as the Fed starts to taper, you know, that's never been the real story. The story's always been about, okay, when do they actually start to, to, to go for liftoff? And that obviously 2022 is what the market is really betting on, and increasingly so. The issue with that is that, okay, when, when, the, when they actually have to start to really, truly accelerate this tapering program, and our call is, you know, right around early start of Q2 is when both tapering and the return of the Fed, uh, the Treasury Department to the, the public debt markets on the other side of taking down the repo um, largesse is likely to become an issue from a net liquidity perspective. And so you're talking about a market that could melt up into a very obvious problem with net liquidity by the second quarter of next year. To me, I think that's a, that's that's going to create some fireworks, but obviously it's yeah. our job as investors to take advantage of that. All right, so 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 nervous, so so some turbulent times around Q2. I think this answers Daniel's question. Daniel had a question. I was expecting the beginning of the downtrend following the tapering announcement. Instead, it popped higher. The last time the announcement of tapering hit the market hard was it the loose guidance on the interest rate hike. Um, it sounds like you you sort of explained why we're why we're seeing a rally and meant melting up. It's not really about the taper. It is about that interest rate policy. Um, so. It, and it also sounds like you're saying it's not that that they telegraphed it so well and everything's fine. We're going to cruise through this massive transition. You're just saying the any problems that we're likely to see are really going to be around that interest rate pivot as opposed to the tapering. Yeah, we already priced in the tapering announcement from right. June to August, right? From the early part of June through the middle of August, we eviscerated pure reflation trades. You know, mm -hmm. if you got caught on being super long reflation in the early part of June, you got your face handed to you. And that's mm -hmm. something we call it out again on Real Vision as well. Um, but anyway, so my, my point is, I think the reason the market wasn't so concerned about the tapering announcement is because it's been extremely telegraphed. Markets do, don't deal well with surprises. They deal very well with, you know, very anticipated events. And moreover, as I mentioned the onset of the show, we came into today with a very healthy implied volatility premium and something like the SPY, which obviously is a broad market index. And so mm -hmm. that meant that the, the probability that we saw a down move on any of these dynamics was actually quite low. It actually yeah. meant that we had to to rally. So, Darius, our subscribers who are on the exchange may have noticed earlier today, you posted the provocative question, the bears are trapped. Uh, are, will their performance chase 7 to 10% upside on the S&P 500? We talked about the bears being trapped. Is that the type of move you see, um, especially given the fact that we are seeing a pretty robust reaction today? Um, you know, What are you expecting in terms of gains on the S&P, and are we going to see you know, what are we seeing in terms of breadth? Because we mentioned before, NASDAQ hitting all-time high, Russell hitting all-time high. I mean, we're seeing the gains across the major indices. What are your expectations? Yeah, no, the bears, hey, the bears are trapped. It's very clear. We've, it's been, this market has been able to, very been, uh, it's been un, very unable to sustain more than a couple hours of downside for about a month now. Mm -hmm. And the reason they've been unable to sustain a couple hours of downside for a month now is because bears are being forced to cover short high. You know, especially throughout earnings season where you're getting, you know, some pretty, positive reactions to, you know, I would argue some pretty negative uh, news flow. And I think the reality is that's the market telling you that A, earnings are Q3, we're talking, we're in Q4 here, look forward, we're going to see acceleration in growth. But more importantly, we're not talking about a reduction in net liquidity yet. Like, mm -hmm. That is a, in my opinion, a Q2 2020, 2022 event, and it's November 3rd. I mean, that's mm -hmm. a, that's a, a career away from today in terms of risk management. You know, <laughs> yeah, so absolutely. I think, I think yeah. We're having this discussion in mid-January, then I think it's a, an appropriate discussion to have about risk managing that to the downside. But as long as bears, as long as we continue to see signals that bears remain trapped, as long as our market regime analysis continues to say in either reflation or Goldilocks, it's currently in reflation, this market's going to go higher. Yeah. Now, is there anything that you would 
that you're looking to lighten up on or an area of the market that you think does look vulnerable or is it just everything's a blowout? Because we have an interesting question from Roger uh, citing Zillow's 25% price decline uh, as an end to the housing boom or is it Zillow specific? Now, for those looking at that, remember Zillow said it's going to get out of the house flipping business. Um, which is super interesting. I guess the algos just are not working there. Uh, a realtor always told once told me real estate's super local, right? So that's that's very interesting to me. But is that sort of yes. a specific to Zillow, or is real estate an area that looks a little vulnerable? I know you have a very sort of a very detailed what sectors do well under these different grid regimes. Is there an area that you feel a bit nervous about that you'd look looking to lighten up or fade here? Uh, let me answer that two ways. With respect to equity sectors and style factors, no, I do believe that the most appropriate position investors should take in this particular inflation regime is one that understands the distribution of economic outcomes is fairly flat in Q4, and you should be fairly balanced with respect to your liens. You should not be leaning as aggressively as you did from June to August when we were talking about pricing in stagflation or deflation, or as aggressively as you were from November to June, we we're obviously very clearly in reflation. Um, you know, as far as the eye can see, this is not one of those economic moments. This is not one of those market signaling moments. I do believe balance is a, the most appropriate position to take. In terms of something we're studying right now, I'm not necessarily saying we're going to lighten up on it, but we do have a decent amount of exposure to commodities in a 42 macro portfolio construction that we use to help investors risk, you know, manage macros. You know, the one thing I want to see is a very strong bounce off the lower boundary of the probable range in long term inflation expectations. That would actually really cement and confirm a lot of the you know reflation narrative that we've, we've really obviously developed in the last kind of four to six weeks. And so to me, you know, we, we basically hit the low end of those ranges in 10-year break-even, five-year, five-year, four break-even. Actually look at, you know, uh, 10 years, two spread, five, 30 spread, all those things. We actually want to see those things bounce. I don't think they're going to run away, but I do want to see those things bounce pretty strong because that tells you that there's a lot of investors out there that still need to chase. Mm-hmm. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. So you you mentioned commodities. Uh, we've seen you know we've seen big moves. A lot of people in this inflation discussion have been looking at uh they've been looking at energy both on the commodity side and and the equity side they've been looking at metals again on the uh commodity side as well as on the uh on the equity side yep what are your thoughts about the commodity space yeah no like i said we're we're, we're long quite a few bit of quite quite a lot of commodities uh, mostly concentrated energy we have a decent amount of crypto as well uh, in the 42 macro portfolio construction. Come check us out if you guys are interested in that stuff. So yeah, I think what one thing that was pretty interesting heading into this event, and this is something we've been calling out in our morning notes, is that the pure reflation trades within the equity market, like energy stocks, material stocks, in industrial stocks, and then you know the commodities like crude oil, ag, things like that, those pure reflation trades, even base metals, had extremely high implied volatility premiums relative to everything else heading into this week. Because the market got really concerned about you know the potential for a dollar up move on the you know the potential for a tapering announcement followed by some hawkish policy rate guidance out of the Fed, but we didn't get that. We got the most dovish taper of all time. We certainly didn't get any real policy rate guidance out of the Fed, which is exactly what I thought would happen, which is mm -hmm. 
don't say anything. Let the market do the job for you in terms of yeah. keeping inflation inflation expectations in check, and then just keep going about your business. I think he did a masterful job again of going about his business in terms of getting what he needed to get done, both for to support the economy and also to support asset markets. Um, Darius, this is uh, something that that we've been asking. Uh, you think Jay Powell stays in that job? It's worth worth asking because you just said he did a masterful job, and you know there is a lot of calm around what just transpired, considering what happened last time there was a taper. Well, telegraph. We know it's the committee, not not one person. But um, you think he sticks around? And and if there were to be a change, would that be disruptive? Yeah, no, I think so. My my short answer. I'll give you two answers. Short answer is yes, I do believe so. I think it would be a just a just a political gaffe to create instability in financial markets heading into a midterm election year. Obviously, Jay Powell has done. You look at a chart of the stock market and, and and look at a chart of you know GDP relative to trend. He has done a masterful job in managing this crisis, certainly relative to a lot of other central bankers in the world. Um, the longer term answer is, I I think the progressive caucus within the Democrat Party is being compressed in terms of their their sphere of influence. Uh, partially because, one, we've seen Biden's approval rate plummet and not recover. Um, but more importantly, I think these sort of um, gubernatorial elections that we just saw are the first indicator that, hey, look, this inflation narrative is going to be a real hot top button topic on the campaign trail. I mean, it's an easy way to buy to, 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 to get yourself elected if you're, you know, if one, if you're not a progressive and you're still a Democrat, but also most importantly, if you're a Republican. And I think that's something that's going to really keep the progressives in check. In terms of you know Senator Warren really leading the charge against uh, Jay Powell's renomination, but really also keep the progressives in check and and really force them to the table more than they have been on ratifying um, Biden's economic agenda, which probably gives a little bit more uh, um, um, bargaining power to a Senator Manchin and a Senator Sinema. Yeah, which and again that may prove to be a market friendly event. You may get some you know some stimulus, some infrastructure spending, and and maybe not less some is, of the less is more now. Yeah, we're in a situation where we're talking about supply chain disruptions driven by record demand for both record demand on both goods consumption, record demand for employers trying to hire people, and obviously record household savings balances. And we also obviously have much less than record uh, supply of workers available to produ uh, mm -hmm. produce and generate produce goods and generate services. And obviously, we have you know COVID impacting you know, physical transportation lines and storage and all these things. And so if you trap another $3.5 trillion on top of the economy, obviously it's not all going to come in fiscal 22, but, you know, just humor me for this. You drop another $3.5 trillion on that economy, what you're talking about is a significantly higher level of inflation for a much longer period of time than what the current, the Fed is currently projecting, which means you need to, you're going to force a more hawkish policy pivot and a more drastic um, sort of uh, backup in short and long and in, in short long, short and interest rates, I think the long it'll probably have a problem with that. Um, I think getting less is more. The yeah. smaller this package is, as long as it's stimulus, it's stimulus. You know, we all we're really trying to do is offset the fiscal drag that we're going to experience next year. And so, is just getting a little bit one is better for inflation, but more importantly, I think it's better for the sustainability of this net liquidity slope we've been on. We've been on an ex exponential slope in terms of net liquidity provision based on how we calculated forty two macro. That's, that slope is going to transition to a logarithmic extent as a function of tapering. It would eventually go to a negative slope as a function of uh, the Treasury Department really returning to the market in size with its borrowing. The smaller this package is going to be, the smaller the Treasury Department's going to uh, borrow, or the less it's going to borrow, and the more time it's going to take for them to eat away at that $1.3 $1 trillion overnight repo balance. Yeah.
Yeah, all, all great points and something that we're going to have to pay attention to. Uh, you, you know, when, when we're talking about that inflation narrative, you're right. This is going to be the theme. We are going to hear it everywhere because it proved effective in the campaigning, which means it's all over the newspapers. It's in the news cycle. It's kind of in the psyche. It's been it's been a talking point, a big talking point in the crypto world as well, because there are there are some who wonder about Bitcoin or Ethereum as as an effective inflation hedge. Again, debate about that. Um, we do have a question from Florian about that. How does tapering not only affect housing prices and the Bitcoin outlook in general, as it is commonly known as a hedge against inflation. Um, is there a connection between between what we're seeing in terms of Fed policy, economic growth and Bitcoin, or is this trading on its own dynamics right now? Yeah, as long as you're in a positive regime from an economic standpoint, i.e. you're in Goldilocks or inflation, Goldilocks when growth accelerating, inflation is decelerating, inflation, as I mentioned earlier, is when both are trending higher at the same time. It doesn't matter what the Fed's balance sheet's doing or the policy rate, because you're going to have positive expected values in crypto. You're going to have positive expected values in stocks. Stocks, stocks, risk assets don't go down when the economy is accelerating, irrespective. Right. So this is risk on, and and and, and yeah. because they just of that, go up Bitcoin, less Ethereum when, when will, will also benefit from that. Yeah, they just go up at a slower pace. So that's not the issue. The issue for crypto and the issue for risk assets broadly is the confluence of two events that are going to happen right around the second quarter of next year. Growth is going to start to decelerate at a faster pace. We're, we're going to bounce in Q4. It's very likely we bounce in Q4 and then we start to level off and taper uh, on growth in Q1. We're going to actually start that that's that slope of deceleration will pick up to the downside in Q2. And that should also coincide right, roughly around the same time that the net liquidity revision uh, slope might actually turn negative in the same quarter. So that to me is the real big market risk out there. But obviously, as I said, it's November 3rd and we're, you know, that's a couple of careers away. That is. The worrier in me is going to circle that on my calendar, put an exclamation point. I also believe that is when the Fed, I think in, in his press conference, Jay Powell was really talking about Q2, Q3, as them needing to see those inflation numbers coming down um, to yeah. sort of support their inflation. So there's a lot that's going to happen in that area of the year that we need to pay attention for that's going to have an impact on these markets. But you're right. I mean, could, just with that bullish sentiment, do you have targets for the S&P 500 that we should be looking at? Or what, what will outperform here? Or is, is, is it just your pick? Everything. Everything's up. Targets are, targets are a, a, a something Wall Street needs to do away with. And quite frankly, I use them sometimes. But really, what, they, what they're doing, whatever I use a target, it's not based on anything legitimate outside of our short-term probable range process. You know, that's, that's based on math and volatility. Mm -hmm. How, when you talk about targets that are, you know, some target date in the future, all they're really trying to do, all these strategists and analysts are really trying to do, is just create a headline so you can click on their note, create a headline so you can, you know, buy their research. That's not that, that's not how the game works. You talk mm -hmm. to any buy sider that's been on the buy side for more than a week, they'll tell you targets have. This is not about targets. This is about risk management, and risk management is about two things: time and price. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, volatility is a third factor as well. And the reality is what I'm really saying is that we have time to price in positive developments, both on mm -hmm. the growth front and also on the policy front. And so wherever we wind up in S&P points terms or Bitcoin price terms, at the end of that process is where we're going to wind up. you got to deal with it as an investor. The reality is you need to position for it ahead of time in order to take advantage of those risks to the upside. Fantastic point. That's why we have to keep looking out around the corner uh, to see what's coming so that we can get ourselves ready for that. Fantastic well, stuff. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we do every day at 4.30 in the morning at 42 Macro. Please come check us out if you like that. 
Yeah, I love it. 4.30. I, I remember those days, Darius. They're rough. <laughs> we appreciate we appreciate that effort, but you got to get a jump on the day if you're going to get it right, right? Um, Darius Dale for us today from 42 Macro. Thank you so much. We'll have to leave it there. Uh, for more on Ethereum, Bitcoin, all the latest happenings in crypto space this week, you'll want to check out the newest episode of our crypto show called The Defiant. It's free to everyone and airs 6 p.m. Eastern time on Real Vision Crypto. Thanks so much for watching The Daily Briefing. I'll be back same time tomorrow with Tommy Thornton. In the meantime, take care and good luck out there. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.